Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decide to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. Hey, you, where's your captain? I don't know. Sweet! Where's the captain, Sweet? He's gone to the market, but today's catch. All week he has promised to make a payment on the money he owes me. But when he has cattle to sell, he avoids me. I've chased after him long enough. He owes me 300 pounds. I want you to seize the boat in payment. Oh no, Mr. Bianco. That I cannot do. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of 50 Date Night Screams. Our movie is Manfish from 1956. Mike, do you think it's Manfish or Manfish? <laughs> Wait, do you, it sounded like you said the same thing twice. What do you mean? Is it <laughs> Manfish or uh-huh. Manfish? Manfish. I'm sure it's Manfish. Okay. I cannot imagine it's Manfish unless it's French and then it, I, I would, it would like Manfish. <laughs> like, so. Well, now you just added a whole other third thing that I wasn't even thinking. <laughs> All right, welcome everyone. I am Amber Tresca, that is my co-host Mike Tresca, and we're going to take you through this movie that I have to warn you, Mike, it grew on me as I watched it again. I I feel the same. I was, (laughs) we had a rough time last time, and I was actually at very low expectations, and because I've taken an interest in Poe's, Edgar Allan Poe's work, this turned out to be really quite the nugget. So I'm excited to to dig dig into this. Yeah, for sure. Let's start with some content warnings. All right. I'm going to say I'm not an expert in making content warnings, so I always do the best that I can. And for this one, I think that the content warnings should be alcoholism, racism, misogyny, murder, and animal cruelty. For me, I think that covers it. Yeah. Okay. All right. By the way, they're not all equal. (laughs) <laughs> They're like different measures of horrible in the movie, but misogyny being pretty prevalent, but they are all there. Every one of those is in the movie. Right. The way that I am treating the content warnings is that if it's even there a little bit, I'm going to put it in. Mm-hmm. So for sure, some things are more pronounced than others. But I just want to make sure that we kind of cast a wide net here. And as we go through it, we can elaborate a little a little bit more. All right. About this movie, the title is Manfish or Manfish. Manfish. (laughs) (laughs) It is from 1956. It is black and white. The director was W. Lee Wilder. It has a 4.6 out of 10 rating on IMDb going to say i think that is a little low i'm really starting to feel like imdb is a pretty harsh critic 
of movies in general, because so many of these movies are in the fours or fives, and a few of them I think should be a little bit higher. Yeah, and, and some of it is how the movie's judged in the context of modern viewership, which can be something like a bad transfer. Um, sometimes it can be just because it's black and white. So there's a lot of things that I think, unfortunately, drag these films down that they don't get to sit on their own in isolation as, as cinema. They sort of suffer from being compared to, you know, the, the high def 4K world we live in. So I, I do think, for better or worse, um, the masses are not going to always love something just because of the nature of what it is. I know. Well, to me, it's kind of like saying that you don't like a book because it was delivered late. You know, it's like... It's, <laughs> or the Amazon reviews where they're like, this box came later, damaged. And you're like, what does that have to do with the it's product? It's got nothing to do understand. with the product. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. Yeah. All right. The hilarious tagline, which is not really very funny, but this is the tagline. Three deep sea divers get involved in murder while searching for lost treasure. What? Somewhat accurate. Okay. Somewhat yeah. accurate. It is one hour and 26 minutes, although some sources say it is one hour and 16 minutes. So I don't really understand that. But I'm but the version that I watched a couple of times on the YouTubes is one hour and 26 minutes. The notable actor in this movie, there's a few, but the most notable being Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, you know, one of the fun things about doing this podcast is in looking up some of these actors as I'm watching the movie the second or the third time and going over the summary. Sometimes I click through on the IMDb profile and just kind of read about their lives. Just so interesting. I also read obituaries all of the time too. So maybe that's just me. But I, I, I'm interested to know about what their lives were like. And usually with these movies that we're doing in this series is a lot of these people have already passed. So, you know, their life story has been written. So it's it's quite interesting. So if you do go to the IMDb profile, there are quite a few interesting actors that were in this movie, not just Lon Chaney Jr. Anyway, the movie inexplicably opens with a shot of an airplane. We see that people are getting off the airplane. We see a man gets off the airplane, gets into a car, and he goes to the Jamaican consulate. So now we are understanding where this movie is taking place because of that. But you ha it's very quick, so I, I didn't catch it until the second time. It turns out that this man is from Scotland Yard. I'm assuming that he is a detective. So he goes into the consulate, and he asks the officials there to hand over a person to him. That person's name is Walter. But the Jamaican official says, I am not going to release this person to you, and I'm going to tell you why, and here is the story why. And then essentially that's setting it up to be that the movie is the Jamaican official telling the Scotland Yard detective of these events that took place. And I completely forgot. I did <laughs> I've now watched it twice. Yeah. And if you hadn't put it in the notes and brought it up just now, I would have been like, oh, yeah, there's like a weird because the framing is very different from the rest of this. And it's such a long whip back around to get back to that point where you're like, oh, remember the the presumably Scotland Yard investigator asking a question? I forgot completely. But yes, yes, that's helpful <laughs> to ground this film. You could have left that off completely. Totally. Would right. not and that's my point, right? Is you didn't need it. Did not need it. And actually that little opening scene is of such poor quality that I went, Ooh, this is going to be a difficult movie to watch to even understand 
these characters and what they're saying. But the rest of the movie was better in terms of the sound and, and so forth. So we could understand them. All right, next we go to the harbor. We next are going to Port Royal, where we're introduced to Manfish. 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 <laughs> turns, out, <laughs> turns out that Manfish is a boat. And a man and a policeman come by the boat, and they're looking for the captain. The captain's name is Brannigan. Brannigan apparently owes this man some money, and the crew is on the boat, and that includes a man whose name is Swede, and that is Lon Chaney Jr. Swede goes to find the captain, and he also tries to pay the other crew members who are uh, Jamaican natives. The Captain Brannigan basically owes everybody money. That's in a nutshell. All right. So everybody's always looking for him and looking for their money. So Swede finds Brannigan. Brannigan's gambling. And Brannigan says to Swede, I don't care about owing anybody money. And I don't care that these people are threatening to take my boat. I don't care about any of this. But Swede, who is a crew member, not the captain, but a crew member, is really attached to the boat. So it doesn't go over well with him because he wants to make sure that he is able to stay on the crew and be able to stay on his boat because he's so attached to it. Later that night, Swede and Brannigan are at a bar and they meet a man called the Professor. And there's a woman with the Professor. Her name is Alita. And Alita's quite young. The Professor is older. Because it's 1956, I'm not quite sure how to place his age. I would say maybe he's in his 50s. And Brannigan is quite the rogue. And he hits on Alita and gets into a fight with the professor. Now, here's where some misogyny comes in. Because it's it's (laughs) such a wild thing that some police show up to break up this fight that's going on in the bar between the professor and Captain Brannigan. And they say to the professor, go back to your own island, because he doesn't live there in Port Royal. He lives somewhere else. And he says, and they say to him, don't bring your woman back to this island again. And I'm like, what? Like, it's her fault? Somehow, somehow them them fighting is her fault. Yes. And (laughs) I know you didn't pick up on this, but I, I, there's can't be a coincidence. There is another Captain Brannigan in a show that we watched. You know what it is? No. What show? Futurama. Zap Brannigan. Brannigan. (laughs) Oh, did you look that up? Is that a thing? Yes, no, I just looked it up. They didn't, they don't acknowledge the connection, but oh my God, like when you see it, you can't unsee it. Like the masochistic dirtbag that is Brannigan in this film, and he's a captain. And Captain Zap Brannigan in Futurama, uh, there's a lot. There's a, quite a few through line between the two, in my opinion. I don't think it's an accident, but I just wanted to point that out because we're fans of Futurama. That's all. It's funny because as I was saying the name, I was like, there's something he- There's yeah. something I'm missing here. I'm missing something here. And when you said it specifically, Captain Brannigan, I was like, wait a minute, Captain Zap Brannigan? I was like, oh my God, it's it's Brannigan. That's, how many Brannigan captains do we know? Well, we know two. Well, we know so. two. There could be more. I don't know. But that's interesting. Zap Brannigan, hmm, yeah, <laughs> similar, but doesn't have the sa- quite the same edge that Captain well, Brannigan he's supposed to be does. S- stupid funny stupid kind funny of in the show. yeah 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 captain yeah. brannigan in manfish is really just all of the worst qualities 
of a man that you can think of. He has them. He's really bad. He's really and it's interesting, bad. too, because the culture of the island um, comes through that people essentially pay each other in women, um, their services or otherwise, and alcohol. I mean, that's basically sort of the way the currency of the island. And, and there's sort of interspersed these kind of uh, dance sequences and other things. But it's pretty clear they hang out at the bar. And when they need someone to do something, you pay them. And uh, sometimes you pay them in money. Most times you don't. And a lot of times you pay them in alcohol. And a lot of times there are women involved in some kind of, uh, you know, at one point I think you were like, is that a prostitute? Like we were kind of like, what, what's the assumption? Like who is, what's the relationships? There's singers there. There's dancers there. Uh, and it's very fluid, right? It sort of seems like there's a lot of negotiation and anything goes for anybody depending on the price. Uh, and it comes off pretty gross because not surprisingly, the men dominate how this negotiation goes. Um, and uh, Zap, it's, I almost called Zap. Brannigan is the worst of the worst of all of them. Yes. Well, is he though? Well, we'll get there. All right. So yes. So essentially what the culture is there for these people, and by the way, Brannigan, the professor, and Swede are all white. One of the women is white. All of the other people are Jamaicans. Okay, just to put that in context. So they work all day, it seems like, on the boats or whatever that they're doing. And then they basically drink all night and then get up the next day and take the boat out again. And that's pretty much their life. All right. So the next day, they take the manfish out. They're catching turtles. There's oh. a there's a right that's where the animal cruelty i mean okay fishing is legitimate whatever but some people don't like to see that so that's why i put it in the content warnings but well it's like i don't know the turtle's not very fast it's not like it's not like hunting a shark it's this poor turtle moving slowly and there's like you just grab it and then you take it back to the boat then you tie it by a rope and drag it onto the deck so i'm not diminishing the effort i'm sure it takes effort but the turtle does it's a pretty lopsided battle for the turtles it's just a matter of finding them it seems like um which they talk about a little bit of like oh we're going to go to the turtle area um which you know i assume they sort of stake out their claim right that's what they're doing they're hunting the turtles they come across a shark and brannigan and swede get into a fight because swede yells to the crew he's like there's a shark out there come on in and brannigan is like no they need to catch the turtle, like shark schmark, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, they stop, and he calls them all sorts of names and that they need to work harder, etc. Meanwhile, he's not doing anything. Brandon. And if you squint real hard at this film, you're like, is that Killers of the Sea? <laughs> 100%. Is that Captain Caswell? Because, boy, it's like shirtless dude takes the knife, jumps in the water, and is like, I'm going to go take care of that shark myself. And uh, I don't I think he uses a knife. I think he uses a harpoon or something. Uh, he uses, actually uses a trident to go drive the shark off. But it's such a fascinating, like, don't you worry about it. You keep fishing. Manly white guy is going to take care of the sh killers of the sea. So. Yeah, whatever. And then don't be scared of the shark. Like, don't come out of the water, which is a completely right. normal thing to do when you see a shark. <laughs> okay, so Swede and Brannigan are fighting. Brannigan spits on the deck. And Swede loses his shit, is like, you clean that up. And Brannigan does. And that's when we find out that Brannigan won the ship in a game of cards. And it is really Swede that's attached to it, not Brannigan. I think for Brannigan, it's just a way to make money and probably dominate people. All right, so now the men go bad. The two Jamaican men that they've hired for the day go diving again. And they come across a skeleton that's holding a bottle. 
say. You can't see this because this is a podcast, but I'm holding my arm up because that is what the skeleton is doing. It is in somehow intact skeleton holding a bottle. All right. Can I tell you my theory? I yes. will tell you this theory. All right, let's I go have ahead. this theory that this all takes place in somebody's fish tank because there are two things. This is the first one. This is one of the, if you can ever imagine those skeletons who sort of move their arm and the bubble comes up and they move up, that's what the skeleton looks like. He's holding a bottle conveniently up. Uh, apparently hasn't any lost any connective tissue or lig- ligaments. He's still all intact and he's just floating there waving his bottle in the current waiting for someone to see him. And the bubble thing we'll talk about later, but it is just funny because it, it there's this weird like, this doesn't feel like actual offshore waters. It feels like somebody's fish tank. So anyway, which it probably is. It's a set, right? So uh, obviously there was a there was a skeleton in the set because that wouldn't work any other way. But boy, is that a clue. That's a clue, by the way, folks. If you don't know that, if a skeleton is holding a bottle in the water, that's a clue. It's a big clue. Also, <laughs> have to give the movie makers a lot of respect for all of this underwater work. Like mm-hmm. it, you could see what was going on. You could tell it is black and white. It's not, you know, the perfect 4K world, but... You could see what was happening, and there was a lot of it. There was a lot of underwater scenes in this movie. And, and we've now seen quite a few uh, between Killers of the Sea and the other one. Um, I don't remember what it was called with the mermaid, not mermaid. Um, but night all tide. that really... Night Tide, thank you. Um, so it is. This is probably one of the best, actually, of the footage underwater that we've seen. So really well done and and didn't didn't resort to some of the things. I mean, they, they drag out a little bit, but relatively easy to see at least which is good right yeah i tried to find a colorized version because i wondered what that would look like i don't think this movie has at least i couldn't find it on the youtubes anyway brannigan gets the bottle because it is a clue he breaks it open he finds a ring in it and a torn piece of parchment paper that's got some kind of writing on it we recognize this ring because we saw it in a brief flash on the professor's hand So there's a very similar ring that the professor was wearing. So now the two are linked and we have to find out why there's two rings and what's on this paper. It's not in English. And if something suffers in the black and white, this is it, right? If this was color, the gold would really stand out. Yeah. Uh, And if this was color, even the parchment would be easier to see. Um, there is a lot of like just washed out, unfortunately. But that you, I imagine, to your point about if it was in color, like that you, there'd be no way you'd miss the wearing of the gold ring and the commonalities because it's black and white. It's sort of like yeah. it's just hard to see. You could have missed it. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. All right. So Swede keeps having to pacify the crew because you know they keep not getting paid, and brannigan is just relentlessly cruel to swede and everyone else around him for no reason at all and so now brannigan goes to i guess a girlfriend girlfriend's room he just like i don't know breaks into her room goes into her room whatever and literally opens up her purse takes the money out of it and she comes in and she's like ugh, you know that you took another 20 pounds from me and now you owe me 80 pounds. So he's taking money from her too. He talks her into translating the parchment because she can read French, right? So she reads it to him. doesn't make a lot of sense because it's only half of like a riddle. And then he just like gives her a couple of kisses and then just leaves. 
like, I'll see you in a couple days, baby. Just awful. It was it was kind of funny because it also made me think of Ash because he was kind of in there. <laughs> he was kind of like baby. he was kind of like give me some sugar, baby. And he's like, yeah, that's just pillow talk, baby. You know, <laughs> it's just <laughs> it is. It's totally that, and it's so funny because we forgive Ash so many things, and we see other Ash versions, and we're like, oh man, it's terrible. He's toxic, but it is funny because uh, it's. I, I mean, part of it, it's played straight. That's what's. It's not funny, right? This is not meant to be humorous. No, there's um, he, he's zero humor in this movie. Yeah. And the film makes this point. We'll see it later. But there's definitely like a lot of like everybody's just sort of, I guess, potentially using everybody in this big scheme of things with the exception of one or two people. Most of them are really just they'll say one thing, but they're really out for something else. So it's it's uh, it's it's kind of cynical in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. You can't Dakota without me. Look at the rings. You can't tell the difference, but I can. Yours has an eye, mine has an arrow. But you can't tell the difference. The map's no good without my help. It looks like we're partners. I'll let you just live long enough to see me figure it out. All right, so Brandigan talks Swede into taking the manfiche to find the professor, because he lives on another island. So they find the professor. Brandigan shows him this ring and threatens him because, of course, he threatens everyone to get what he wants. And the professor tells Brandigan where he found the ring. He says he found it in a coral reef that's off the shore of the island where he's staying. So Brandigan goes over there and goes diving. The professor's watching. He follows. There's a very long underwater chase scene, and the two men are fighting, and I don't know, actually, Mike, what this weapon is that Brannigan has. It's a spear gun. It's a spear gun. It's a gun. small one. Okay. It's like a handheld spear gun. But yeah, I mean, I think in the notes, you're like, is it a harpoon? It kind of is. It's one of those smaller spear guns you would use to sort of spear um, fish underwater. The idea is it's, uh, it's a very powerful pneumatic shot. It's probably deadly to fish. I don't think it's like instantly explodes people. Let's put it that way. Uh, and even if you got hit with it, I don't think that means instant death unless you got through the eye or something. So there's a little bit like they play this up quite a bit that, you know, if this if Brannigan gets hit with it, he's doomed. And uh, and I think he fires it even. I don't know if he hits him. I guess he doesn't. Um, so there's just a little bit of that kind of like, I don't know how bad it is, but it comes up a lot. This is used as sort of a main weapon because uh, it sort of looks like a gun. But it, it is. It's a, it's a sort of a pneumatic spear gun. OK, so they're they're fighting, they're fighting. And then they end up on the shore fighting in the shallows. And Alita runs out and she's got the other half of the map and she wants to hand it over. I'm not really sure why she does this, but the professor says, look, now we have to be partners because you aren't going to understand the meaning of all of this. And you have part of this riddle and I have part of this riddle and we're going to have to work together. Now, this is not amicable. Um, they're kind of forced into this partnership. And the next thing you see, they're all aboard the Manfiche. And Brannigan can't figure out the map. So the professor's like, aren't you a dummy? You big dumb dummy. You don't understand any of this. And you need me. And so the, the professor translates what's on the parchment. And it's a riddle. And I'm not going to recite it because it really doesn't make any sense. And it's not the point of the <laughs> movie. It really doesn't. Yeah. Um, but he tells Brannigan he's going to keep some of the information to himself so that Brannigan can't double cross him. Brannigan needs him. And at this point, it, it's been going on the whole movie that Brannigan is terrible to everybody, but they are, Brannigan and the professor are 
very horrible towards Alita verbally, physically, and they're saying to her, essentially, we're going to get this treasure and whichever one of us gets the treasure, you're going to want to be with that one. It's it's wild. It's a just awful. Yeah, the whole thing, the whole premise is gross. I mean, it is very much meant, it's not an accident, right? So uh, at this point, they had dismissed the other two guys. So it's just Swede, Alita, and these two psychopaths and um they're in a they're in a battle of wits and muscle essentially you know there's definitely this idea that everybody's using everybody so alita is and the professor makes this comment right the reason she's staying with him he implies is not because of his brains or that he's this great catch but that he has the potential to get her more money whether or not that's true alita doesn't say one way or the other in fact but they assume it and what's interesting is the professor the i don't know the actor's name I'm sure that's in our notes here. He really hams it up. He is the professor of the... He's not a professor, by the way. I think they make that point. He is. He's just well-educated, I guess. And he's older, so he gets the reputation as professor. And he... Boy, does he just twist the knife with Brannigan. So they're really interesting foils, right? Uh, Brannigan is awful, but he's a little more tolerable because the professor just screws with him constantly. And the two of them are both awful. And by the end of it, you're just like... I hope everybody burns, but they 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 really are interesting foils, right? So the, the movie sets up this dynamic where this masculine, there's certainly like age versus experience, right? So there's this younger, you know, more virile Brannigan, supposedly, compared to the professor who has to compete with his wits uh, a little bit. So there's definitely that sort of constant play up where the professor keeps dragging out how he knows things that Brannigan doesn't know, and he plays on Brannigan's greed, uh, which I think is interesting. But certainly a theme of the whole film is how corrosive uh, greed really is and how much damage it does to people who, you know, it's like it never ends, right? So um, as we see, it, it the promise of more just keeps the plot going. Because if anybody was satisfied instantly, the, the movie would have ended like, you know, 15 minutes in. Yeah, well, it's the same with, you know, gambling, right? If you took your winnings when you were ahead and just walked away, that was, that's right. the thing to do. But nobody actually does that. Right. So, okay. So now at this point, the professor burns the map and he says, this is insurance for me to make sure that you won't kill me. So, whew. All right. So the professor, Brannigan, and Swede get off the boat and go in search of the treasure. So now they're following the clues. It leads them. It does lead them to the treasure and they dig it up. Um, of course, they make Swede do most of the digging and all of this. And it turns out that this is not the only treasure that there is to find. There's more. There's another map inside this treasure chest. So the professor makes sure that he tells Brannigan, look, you have to let me live. You can't hurt me because I'm the only one that can help you find the next treasure that this you know, supposed pirate person has left behind. You know, one step ahead to make sure that Brannigan doesn't just murder him. So they leave. There's this long scene. There's a long scene in following the clues. Doesn't matter. Long scene getting the treasure chest off the island, over the waterfalls, back to the manfiche. And so they're on the boat again and they're they're fighting, but they're they they have to come to an accord. So they decide they're going to sell part of this treasure in Port Royal, put the money in the bank. It's kind of insurance. And then they're going to follow these clues to go and get the next set of 
treasure, whatever that is. All right, so they go take the Manfish and go back to port. Now, the professor at this point is starting to get really paranoid. We are seeing him. He's carrying around that weapon that you said what it was, Mike, and that immediately went out of my head. He's carrying around this pneumatic spear gun. Mm-hmm. And he's taking it around with him on the boat and he's hiding it under things. And he's also just trying to avoid being in the same physical space as Brannigan. This actually seems kind of smart, but the way he goes about it, he's very furtive. And you can tell that he's just, he's really worried that he's going to get He's it. very theatrical in everything yeah, he does, everything. including skulk around with his spear gun, which he at least two to three times relocates, which again, you're like, why are we watching this? Like, okay, but. why are we seeing it but he does that yes for sure yeah all right they get to port and they send swede and alita on shore to sell some of the gold because again they don't trust each other and they're like well you're gonna take off and you're gonna do this whatever so that's what they decide to do all right and what they have from this treasure chest they estimate might be worth around twenty-five thousand pounds then the professor says he thinks the next treasure might actually be worth millions All right, so now Brannigan is really, really on the hook. And the professor, again, makes like he's going to burn this next map that they found. Brannigan runs over to put it out, and he's looking at the the map, at the paper, and we see over his shoulder that it says, I told you I'd kill you, on it, written in English. And at that point, the professor does shoot Brannigan with his pneumatic spear and then he drags the body kind of okay this was comical it wasn't meant to be comical (laughs) but he's but the professor is dragging brannigan's body up the steps onto onto the deck like by his belt and the professor does not appear to be infirm in any way he does look like an older man but he does he does appear to be very hale and but it was very funny to see him drag Brannigan on deck by his belt, grunting and groaning the whole way. And it's daytime. He covers Brannigan with a tarp because a crew member, of course, a crew member comes by. Brannigan owes me money. He says, then another sailor comes by and says, we need to borrow a piece of equipment. And then the girlfriend Mimi comes by. She's looking for Brannigan and like, Everyone's looking for Brannigan. I was waiting for this to be a weekend at Manfish where they like use a rope to make him wave at people. But he, it almost gets there. It gets pretty close because a few times people either stumble, almost stumble on it or something. But uh, boy, the professor has some hilarious moments where he has to keep saying, oh, he's busy or here's the money, um, which is ironic because in some ways the money everybody's concerned about and they have enough to pay everyone. They really do. Um, the professor's trying not to bring too much attention to it, but he has the money. He doesn't and have sometimes... he doesn't have paper money. He has the treasure. Right. And right. there's of course reasons why they can't pay people with the treasure because right. they ha they're so worried about somebody finding out and gonna come to steal it from them or do them harm or try to take a map from them, whatever. So they're like, we can't be pulling out these like gold doubloons and paying people with them. We have to fence yeah. some of this stuff first. The other thing that comes up, and it's funny because you and I mentioned this. I was like, what if Brannigan is just like, I don't know, 25,000 pounds is good. 
what the hell do I need a million for? What am I going to do with it? And he actually says that out loud, right? And one of the reasons the professor sort of finally institutes his plan is because Brannigan starts going, you know, I don't know if I care this much about this extra million you potentially made up or I don't know is true or whatever. Um, so he really starts getting essentially rising, almost whipping himself up to threaten well, uh, it's, the professor. It's Brannigan wants the millions. Alita and Swede don't care. Right. Well, and that's what I was going to say. What comes up is the professor is flummoxed by the number of people who actually want to talk to Brownie and just don't want to get paid. So there's a couple of the guys who work on the boat and they're like, no, we'll take it from him. Like, I want to talk to him. And the professor's like, no, just take the money and go. What do you have to talk to him for? And he he's almost like, why isn't everybody like me? Like, you should just care about the money. Who gives a crap about talking to him? And he's sort of underestimating how much the personal relationships matter. Again, I don't think Brannigan cared that much about these relationships, but everybody else did. And they really do want to talk to him face to face. So it's such a fascinating dichotomy between the professor's perspective, which is it's just money. Who cares? And uh, all these relationships Brannigan had, for better or worse, that people valued and they wanted to talk to him, even if it meant they were just getting paid and they should just, you know, as soon as you pay them, they walk away. And a lot of them don't want to. They want to talk to him. In addition to that... What you're also seeing here is the honesty of, for instance, the day workers, the crew. The man says to the professor, no, you don't owe me this money. Brannigan owes me the money. I don't want to take your money. I want Brannigan to pay me. So there are a lot of honest, hardworking people that are happy Maybe I shouldn't say happy. That's not really demonstrated, except for Swede. <laughs> Swede is Who pretty is happy when he's driving the manfish, and you know that's it's good enough for him. But they are content to live the life that they are living, and they're not scheming and looking for something else. They're looking for an honest day's work and to be paid an honest wage. And the professor doesn't understand that. No. Yes, I burn the map. It's all in here now, Brannigan. All in here. There's no more map. Only my memory. You better be careful not to hit me too hard. I might forget. I've got life insurance now, Brannigan. Anyway, this is the tension is, you know, rising here. The professor's freaking out. Brannigan's body is still under this tarp on the deck and he's he's afraid someone's going to find it meanwhile if he had left the body below deck for a little while it may have gone better for him at he had no plan all right so now swede is in the bar he's looking for this person he's going to fence some of the items from the treasure chest too he's also being harassed everybody's looking for brannigan finally at nightfall the professor ties one end of a rope to Brannigan's neck. And then he's fussing. He's trying to figure out what to do here. Doesn't really have a plan. And the body falls overboard. (laughs) And then the professor's panicking. So he ties the other end of the rope to one of the oxygen tanks. He dumps that overboard too. Presumably his thought is this tank is going to weigh the body down because he couldn't fish the body back out. Once it was overboard, that was it. He was not going to be able to do anything else but at least the body would stay under the water at that point the problem is the oxygen tank is losing air so there's bubbles coming up in the water and we're seeing this over and over from the site where 
Brannigan's body fell overboard. That's just just over the side of the deck. It's not like it's out, like they're in port. All right, so that's where the body is. And the professor stays on the manfish. He's just freaking out and he's smoking and he's drinking. And I think just waiting for a Swede and Alita to come back. Right, and they've been sent to essentially get, to convert the, the some of the yeah, at one they're point fencing Brannigan's the like just sell the coins and he's like you can't sell that you sell the coins they're going to know it's ancient coins it's got to be the jewel so there's a whole negotiation that you mentioned earlier of making sure they liquidate this in a way that is safe without letting Doesn't every pirate attention. in the area know um so they're pretty and they're you know if this was a quick transaction or they could just go to the bank or whatever it would be over so differently but because of that they have to negotiate they have to find the fence the fence has to negotiate. They have to make sure he's not going to say anything. So they're off doing all this while the professor's murdering people. <laughs> like just murders one person. <laughs> all right. So it's a lot of work. So Sweet and Alita come back and the professor says, oh, Brannigan ran away with the treasure. And let's take the manfish. Let's go to Nassau. Let's get it re-registered. And Swede, you can have the boat. And Swede's like, eh, I don't believe you. I don't think that he would have run off. This doesn't make a lot of sense. So they're forced to stay there, ostensibly to wait for Brannigan to come back or for Swede to figure out where Brannigan is. Meanwhile, this air keeps coming up from the tank that is tied to Brannigan. And it is really ingenious on... On the first watching, I noticed it. On the second watching, I really had such an appreciation for the way that they used the sound of the bubbling to demonstrate mm-hmm. how it was torturing the professor. It's not just bubbling, but he's hearing it. Other people don't really seem to hear it. He's like below deck. He's hearing it. And it starts to take on this otherworldly echoing quality. It's not just this benign bubbling and if you think about like bubbling in a fish tank to your point mike think about how we use fish tanks right they're always in dentists offices because (laughs) Mm -hmm. because some research somewhere said that it calms people i know people who used to keep a fish tank because they like to hear the bubbling like in their bedroom it was kind of a calming sound to sleep to well this bubbling becomes malicious and threatening and it is torturing the professor and they do that through the sound and then also through the professor basically chewing the scenery and it was really it was really very good yeah and and the sound repeats so the other thing is normally if it's bubbling it bubbles in different ways it sort of bubbles one way bubbles another way there's really a lot i mean look this we'll talk about this a little bit i'm sure in the inspiration from edgar Allan poe and, and the telltale heart but it is meant to be a uh, staccato rhythm that is unsettling and it certainly is but it's not your typical random bubbling and it's not a steady bubbling it's this very much like a heartbeat sound and uh it's weird when you hear bubbling <laughs> consistent like that right so all right they go through the night the next day the police show up again at the manfish looking for Brannigan again the crew shows up Mimi shows up. It's like it's like this is your life. You know? <laughs> Everybody's showing up looking for Brannigan. And the professor is sticking to his story that Brannigan ran away. He took off to Nassau with the treasure. Swede notices this bubbling and he notices the professor noticing the bubbling. And he also notices that one of the air tanks is missing. They only had two. Which is just like 
the biggest clue. <laughs> the biggest clue. Forget the bubbling. Yeah. This guy, there's not a lot of stuff on this boat. Right. <laughs> and by the way, it says manfish on the tank. Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> he also notices that the line was cut, all right, that there's a frayed rope. So now he's looking overboard and he sees Brannigan's captain's hat. For dramatic effect, we're not going to talk about the fact that that hat would have been long gone, whatever, okay? So, but he sees it. He very quickly puts two and two together. He jumps in the water and finds Brannigan's body. And the rest of it happens very quickly. The police are already there, so they arrest the professor. Alita goes over to Mimi and gives her a gold bracelet that she had taken from the treasure and says, Brannigan wanted you to have this because the two women were a little bit at odds over Brannigan. And it's there's a very interesting small moment where Mimi just kind of like throws the bracelet on the ground. Meanwhile, it's like a gold bracelet. So again, for Mimi, it was not about the money. You know, right. she may have been coming to the boat saying... I'm here because he owes me money. That's not why she was there. Truly. Right. And they and they bring that up because there was a little bit of like, oh, do you love him? And she's like, no, I, you know, he owes me money. But the her actions say otherwise. And again, this is a dramatic flourish that didn't have to be in the film, that somebody wanted to make a statement. Right. About people's characters. Right. Sweet pays everybody, basically. And they release their claim on the ship. They say, all right, I didn't, I didn't want this boat. I just wanted to get paid. So now that I'm paid... Swede, it's fine. Take the boat. It's yours. Swede is over the moon. He's happy. He gets his two crew members and let's go out. Let's go catch some turtles. All right. So they leave port, but the treasure is behind the boat on a line. That's where the professor hid it. And the line keeps getting tangled up in the propeller. So they're kind of, they're not really able to move out of port because they're getting caught up on it. So Swede sees this line hanging over the side. It's really kind of funny because I don't know that a sailor would actually do this. But he cuts the line and he didn't know that he was cutting loose the treasure chest. And so now the treasure is lost again. The end. <laughs> <laughs> so quite a morality play, but it was based on some of the works of Edgar Allan Poe. His work is less familiar to me, so Mike... It is your time to maybe give a little context of which works that this movie relied on and how they were changed to fit the narrative of sailors and the setting of being on being on a fishing boat. Yeah, so the first, it, it, they say this up front, which is, and it was funny because you and I talked about this when we were watching it. We're like, they actually gave credit to something that, you know, I don't know, if you didn't say it, I think people would have been like okay like they didn't need to say it but um, i think i would have gotten you, the telltale heart i think i would have the telltale put that heart probably yeah. but gold bug is a different one no. so there's two edgar Allan Poe stories uh the first one is gold bug uh gold bug is one of the first examples of crypt um uh what's the phrase crypt cryptology cryptology D basically using a cipher where he really popularized the idea of a code where the audience could figure it out so he writes this whole story and the idea is very much what happens in the in the movie uh, it's Captain Kidd's treasure, which I thought was cool that they kept that in. And the idea being that somebody finds this parchment and the parchment has these, it has a cipher that you have to decode and you can do it. Like they actually, the protagonist takes you through how he figures it out using simple things like look for the word the, 
or look for the most common. We know the word, the letter E is one of the common letter vowels. Look for where that would be. And he then slowly helps you decipher it. So it got, was really popular when it was published. Um, ironically, uh, there are so many typos and errors in when it was done that most of the time it actually doesn't work right. If you try, I've tried. Um, but it was a really interesting concept. And it involved what we see in the movie, which was um, you had to find a location to a thing where you drop something else and then that caused something else. So it wasn't just like, oh, X marks the spot. It was very much sort of a riddle that led you to another thing. And then you had to do some, and they do some of that. They sort of lower, they use their rings. The rings are not part of the original story. Um, so Goldbug was interesting. Now, Goldbug has some really gross racism in it. Uh, and the servant character who is working for the main character, who is sort of like the professor, is a lot like Swede. So Swede is meant to be that character. He, he's just, the way that he's characterized uh, is different, but he's very much this sort of very happy to do things. In fact, the Swede does what um, the character does. I think, I'm trying to remember what his name was, uh, but does something similar at, to him in climbing the tree and, and figuring out. So that's one piece. And Goldbug is very much about this. Now, Goldbug sort of just ends with the treasure. I, I guess they figure it out and, and it's a lot of treasure. There isn't two treasures, uh, which is interesting, but that's part of the plot, right? They're trying to propel the, the story forward um, so the professor can uh, drag things out. But it is about two characters, but they're friends. They're not They're not sort of enemies, and there's not this competition. In fact, they work together. The other thing is, because the treasure is enormous, it's worth millions, uh, you can't just pick it up and walk out with it like they do. So um, it sort of ends there. The other one, as you mentioned, was The Telltale Heart. And The Telltale Heart is obviously a better well-known story, which is about uh, someone who, uh, there's someone they w live with who has a, possibly a cataract or some kind of blue, filmy eye that haunts the narrator. Uh, to the point that they decide to kill him and chop him up. And uh, what they do is that person hides them under the floorboards, and then when the police come, they are so convinced they're hearing the person's heart that, that they murdered that they end up unintentionally in their madness revealing uh, that they did it, pointing to the the corpse, the dismembered corpse under the floorboards. And as I mentioned, the, the parallels there with the, with the bubbling replaces the heart. And it does it pretty organically, I think. I, I thought it, uh, they pretty smoothly integrated both of these. I didn't feel like either of them felt like a really awkward... A lot of times we see, like, you know, we'll go back to Night Tide, which said it was based off of Annabelle Lee. And I was like, whatever, guys. Okay, this is different um, in terms of inspiration. I think it takes enough inspiration to do some interesting things with it, but sort of discards the stuff that wouldn't be very interesting for audiences or that you couldn't show easily anyway, right? So the, the cipher, there's only so much you can do. And as you mentioned, the riddle doesn't entirely make sense to us anyway. So I thought it was a really good way to take two of Poe's stories. I was actually surprised, you know, it, sometimes these movies hit me at the right place, right time. And I'm super interested in, in uh, Poe's work, partially revived because we watched the House of Usher series on Netflix and loved it. So it was sort of an interesting time frame. And this, this is not the last one. There's another one uh, in this series that we'll, we'll revisit that's based, very specifically based on Poe's work. So it's really, uh, I thought it was, all things considered, a pretty inventive and creative way to incorporate two of his stories. Right. And I'm not an Edgar Allan Poe stan, at all. I am of the opinion at this point that the derivative works based on his stories are many times better than what he did. So, and this might be, this might be in that realm. It might be one of, I mean, the Telltale Heart actually is, everyone knows it because it is such a classic and it was so 
well done and you could put yourself in the place of the protagonist being driven to madness by something that you did in a in a in a fit of passion guilt we've all felt that emotion at one point or another and i do think though that clever screenwriters and directors and filmmakers as we're seeing here are taking that idea and using it in ways that make a lot more sense, are more cohesive. It's almost like Edgar Allan Poe is that popcorn kernel. And these other folks are popping that popcorn kernel and making it into something really great. You know, so yeah. I, I think we see that over and over again. And it's just so interesting that everyone goes back to his work. There has to be other great work out there that you could use for inspiration, but so many people go back to Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, this is this the second movie in just this series. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Poe did a lot of things first in America. Right. right? So it doesn't mean that he was first no. overall. But he was sort of our early American It's like a Shakespeare. Uh, Right, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So th what's interesting is a lot of this stuff isn't necessarily absolutely, you know, novel, but he did it, and then he did it sort of pop in popular culture. There, you know, I've been going through all his short stories, and, you know, some of them are rough. Yeah. Um, so it's funny, because there's things that are great, and there's some others you're like, mm, I don't know if everybody would agree, uh, and there's a reason, right? So it, it is fascinating, but to your point, his impact on culture, I think probably less so now. Um, but probably in the 40s and 50s was significant. In the same way, Marquis de Sade kept showing up in horror movies. We were like, oh, my God, really? You guys going to keep uh, just mentioning him over yeah. and over? Um, so it's sort of interesting how these sort of horror slash gothic icons uh, are, are so influential to these films. But, yeah, I mean, absolutely influential. I, I uh, Funny story. I So I obviously have read a lot of Poe, both as an English major and, and I – forgot I had a test one day and had to take the test on Poe cold, no testing, studying, and I got an A. Um, so it was funny because I, I, I never forget that. Like, I was like, oh, crap, I'm not ready. And they were like, oh, it's on Poe. And I was like, oh, that's fine. And I actually aced the test. So it was just fascinating um, because, you know, a little Poe goes a long way. <laughs> uh, and if you know... If you know enough about him, you sort of know everything, you know, uh, so it's sort of interesting. I mean, I would argue now, frankly, now that I'm reading his short stories, he's got way more depth than people dig into, right? Uh, Goldbug was actually pretty popular. Certainly Telltale Heart is. There are, he's written hundreds of stories that were much more, and poetry, um, that have themes that he comes back to and are really different. But, you know, not surprisingly, the popular ones are the ones that sell movies, and that's, look, it's not an accident that they said it was influential, which we thought was interesting, right? That gives the movie a little legitimacy. Right. That's so funny that you have that story. I, you've never told me that before. Yeah. And it's very yeah. similar to a situation I had in college where I had to write an essay. It was for my environment, environmental writing class. And one of the books that you could write it on was Dune, <laughs> which I've read dozens of times. I didn't, I didn't even own a copy at that point. I just sat down and wrote the essay. It was like, it was not, I'd already read it so many times. So I don't know. That's my girl. When you I, love I, the written I, word. I always, I laugh when you and I look at our history sometimes because we actually have a lot of things in common in high school. I always say that we would have got along great in high school because we actually have surprising commonalities. Like, you know, we didn't, some of the stuff we haven't told each other 
until we you know knew each other obviously much later so it's funny but uh yeah i could totally see that yeah and it's very similar it's yeah. similar you're like oh great you just happen to ask the thing i keep locked in my head rent free all the time yeah <laughs> let me tell you about it i mean i could please could write you an essay <laughs> today yeah no problem Captain Brannigan ain't run away. If he had you to follow him. Yes, you're right. That's very clever of you, sweet. Very clever of him. But we must leave now, tonight. Oh, look. Captain Brannigan ain't gone. He'll come back. He won't come back. I mean, why should he? Why should he? He's taken all the treasure. Well, I don't care about the treasure. Me and the manfish stay here. Okay, are you ready to give this movie some ratings? I'm ready, baby. All right. We're going to give this movie some ratings. It is based on our own homegrown ratings system that we came up drinking one night <laughs> as we conceived this podcast in wow. a fit of, I don't even know what came over Passion. us. Passion. Passion. <laughs> You're using other words that turn this into a very different story at first. So it, I no, like no, it. no. Right, it was going. just very, like, I, I literally don't know what came over us. But here we are now, 29 episodes in. All right. So we are going to give this movie between zero and five knives, glasses of wine, and screams. We will start with knives. And knives represent... What was the body count? How scary was it? Was it gory or did it live up to its title? And so, Mike, I'm going to ask you first, between zero and five knives, how many do you have for Manfish? Manfish. So there's a couple things. Yeah, I, I never can just give a number, right? I, I do try to explain my thinking. I think there's horror in the sense that the professor, if you put yourself in the professor's shoes, and it's interesting because I've seen summaries about this, that, look, it's pretty clear Brannigan is dead. You know, one of the things that I think the telltale heart sort of implies is that somehow there's a spirit or something haunting the protagonist. I don't think that's no. the professor's belief either. No. I think he's just freaked out someone's going to find out. Uh, and the movie makes it clear too, right? So I, I, the way I read a lot of the summaries before I saw the film was very much like, is he alive? Because the bubbles are coming up and maybe he's just, I don't know, hanging out down no. there. No. Uh, no. It's very clear he's dead. They keep showing him floating. He dead. But... <laughs> Point, point is that <laughs> the that is gothic horror in some ways, right? I think he chews a lot of scenery. I think that's interesting. Uh, there's not a lot of murder here. Um, so there's not a lot of death scenes. And the death scene sort of this weird, I don't know, uh, sort of one-shot spear gun thing. Which, by the way, I made the mistake of looking up. And I do not recommend you do. Or you're going to see something from PubMed that will haunt your dreams. Um, oh, did but, somebody uh, did somebody get shot with it? Oh, and yeah. have to come into the oh, emergency room, and then it became a case report. Oh, yes. self-inflicted. Oh, Self that's a shame. Uh huh. Oh. Yeah. Oh, it's a shame oh, to watch it. Yes, it is. I'm. <laughs> it's going to okay. be a rough night for me. You, it's, you, you are well more experienced than this. But anyway, point being um, that it is horrible, but it's not really on screen. So it's it's. I actually found Brannigan's threatening to be more disturbing. To be honest, uh, Brannigan is definitely the kind of character who you just feel like he could turn on you any minute. Um, he's kind of this rampaging, what, infant terrible, if I'm saying it right. He just does what terrible. he wants. Interrible. <laughs> on the manfiche. 
Um, he he's terrible. He and he's unpredictable, and he's just this raging man boy who does whatever the hell he wants. So um, he's kind of scary. But yeah, so you add all that up. I don't think it's the movie is that scary or gory, but there are elements. It has its moments, and the bubbling I thought was good. So I want to give it one and a half. One and a half. Wow. I'm making a face yeah. that you can't see because this is a podcast. But uh, that's a low knife cut. But, I, well, if you go through it, and I've never really thought about it this way before, but we sort of have five tips to this knives rating. And there was a low body count. It was not exactly scary or gory. And the title made no fucking sense. Um, you didn't even ask if it was a horror film, by the way, but it's not. So. Yeah, no, it's not a horror. It's not a horror. Yeah. Yeah. I am going to give it two knives. Okay. There was another point to this with the professor. He was so white knuckled through this whole thing. And that was also because we understood that he came from England, although he had that weird mid Atlantic accent. He did not have an <laughs> English accent. His accent at all. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> But, and well acted. This movie was well acted throughout. He had been there for five years. Presumably, he had been chasing this down for five years. And then this fucking meathead comes along <laughs> with the missing piece that he's been looking for this whole time. That had to be just the worst for him and takes takes his woman air quote right whatever that context and relationship was but sort of just comes yeah. along and literally the way he literally Brannigan takes operates, everything he just from him. puts hands on her like he and she just you know grabbing she's not him or grabbing pushing him. her grabbing her yeah she's not pushing him away but like it, it, so he just comes in you know and it, even when he comes to the island he's just go make a beeline for Alita right. and it's just yeah. like holy cat so yeah I, uh, you know, I wanted to kill Brannigan too by the end of this. So, oh yeah, it was not, I, did I, I get not where the did not shed a tear over his death in in any way. So, but yeah, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it two knives for that reason. Fair. All right. So, glasses of wine is our next rating, and that is how fun was it to watch, and did it have any unique moments? What do you think, Mike? Glasses of wine. So there are scenes that just drag. Under, there's at least a few underwater scenes where it's just I don't know what's happening. It's just taking forever. It's hard to do it. It's really hard to show a pursuit. I think the idea is to drive the tension up that this professor is going to shoot Brannigan with a spear gun. It doesn't happen really, and it doesn't happen in a way that you can see. Um, even the sort of shark potential thing, they're just hard to do. So some of these scenes drag. There's also scenes of folks locally that seems to just be stock footage. Uh, I think they played the same song four times. <laughs> there's there's a little bit of repetition. I think the movie could have been an hour, actually. Uh, if you take a lot of those other scenes out that sort of don't really add to the plot, it still would have been moving along pretty crisply. So it loses a star. Uh, star? It loses a glass for that. Uh, but this is actually pretty interesting. If you pay attention and you are interested in Poe, which is not for everybody, um, I think there's some really interesting nuggets here that surprisingly i was ready to be like oh my god because the other movie before this was really rough um but this was actually pretty entertaining to me so i i'm willing to give it uh four glasses wow interesting yeah i will mostly agree with your points i'm not sure that any stock footage was utilized except maybe of the shark 
Other mm-hmm. than that, I think it all may have been original and maybe like the airplane footage that could have been stock footage. I think it may have been meant to be by either the writers or the director a love letter about Jamaica because they did seem to make an attempt to show the culture, but I don't think they did a good job of it. I think I, I, I think they actually <laughs> did did Jamaica a disservice with this mm-hmm. movie. But with showing the the singing and the bar scenes and the the nightlife, I think they were they were trying in their clumsy way to show that this was a paradise and a place that they enjoyed. But it it just ended up to to our 2023 sensibilities all wrong. Totally, totally wrong. That being said, it was pretty unique, except for the treasure hunting part. If it were in color, I imagine some of the the locations would have been really beautiful and very interesting um, to watch. So I think that I am going to give it two glasses of wine for those reasons. It gets glasses off for all of the ways that People were treated horribly. And look, you can't have characters be amazing, upstanding humans who never do anything wrong because then there would be no story, right? But when it includes groups of people that are already marginalized, that is wrong. That's a huge problem with the movie, but it was fun to watch. It was fun to watch the professor lose his shit. Um, the actor did a fine job of it. Lon Chaney Jr. does a fine job. He is kind of a sweet, uh, sort of hapless character. He just wants to drive the boat, you know? And by all accounts, Lon Chaney Jr. was like this in real life. A, a lot of commenters have said this. He had issues with alcohol. Um, he was actually a very sweet person, a lot of people felt. Uh, but could actually be really violent. And and, and mm. ironically, actually did strangle an actor on set who pissed him off. So like this feels a little autobiographical. It's kind of an interesting thing yeah. that um, there's several elements of Lon Chaney Jr. in the Swede character. He doesn't seem to do much, which is fascinating. He's sort of there. Uh, he's certainly important, but he's not really like the main character given probably top billing. And certainly I think the joke we were making is 50, day, uh, 50 Screams collection mentions him <laughs> and this is the movie is guys the movie. it's not any of the horror movies that you would assume he was in so this was at uh his career was on sort of the downswing i think he does a fine job it's just interesting because it, it feels a little true to life whether or not you know that was but certainly if you look at his biography this was the way he was he was a he was a stalwart um defender of actors rights uh, he stood up for several uh smaller bit part actors uh, but he loved to drink and he he could hurt people if he got drunk Mm. Um, so yeah, and I would say that's the Swede, right? You just summed him up too. Yeah, kind of. And I will say it again. If you go to the IMDb page, I do recommend that you read the profiles of some of the other, the main actors in this movie, because they did lead interesting lives. Some of them lived to be quite old and some of them died young. And so just the human experience that they bring to these parts and, a lot of them were sort of typecast. Uh, the woman that played Mimi also a little bit typecast in this role. But still, they, they all did a great job. 
um, frankly. And the women were gorgeous. Oh, my God. They were both. So beautiful. Really beautiful women. And again, it's sort of done in a disservice by the black and white. Yeah. Frankly, I think everybody's sort of like a blur, but... But both of the female leads did a fantastic job. Yeah, just just incredible. All right, so let's move on to Screams. And Screams is an overall rating, but it does not need to be reflective of knives and glasses of wine. So what do you think, Mike? How many Screams for Manfish? Yeah, so uh, three and a half. I um I loved uh, the concept. I think I liked what was in it. Uh, I think the execution was rougher than I would have liked. Um, there's something we, we didn't talk about. It's like a whip around scene. Every scene is sort of like you take the camera and then turn quickly and then land on something. And I wanted to throw up a few times after you saw that. Um, there are definitely scenes I would have cut. There are definitely scenes of racism and misogyny that while I get sort of how they were done, and I think there was some subtle pushback against it to your point. I don't know that the directors sort of understood their own biases or cared enough to no, try and show up. They never understand their own biases, Yeah, but well, they show up, we'll they show up in the work. So, right. Yeah. So we'll see how our podcast shows up in 20, 50 years. But um, so I, I get it. But I, yeah, I think three and a half balancing on the one hand, if you're a Poe fan, this is sort of a treasure. Uh, on the other, it is uh, an imperfect uh, tribute, but not there are worse ones. So I, I will take this one three and a half for me. I'm going to give it three. It um, it was kind of a little gem. And I did enjoy the first half of the movie was a little bit draggy at points, although I can appreciate the efforts, even if it wasn't something that I personally enjoyed. Those underwater scenes had to be brutal to film and to act. And the people that did it were not the main characters. So unfortunately, it wasn't like they were going to be on, you know, the 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 poster, their names or anything like that. Um, so that's unfortunate because they're the ones that did the hard work. But the second half of the movie, watching the professor just become unraveled, that was pretty great. And, and watching him, he had so many choices. He had so many things that he could have done. And he just made all the wrong choices. It was it was fantastic. So so for, the, for those reasons, I'm going to give it three screams. We're going to move on to the character that Mike created for use in people's tabletop role-playing games, which you can download. You can use it in your tabletop role-playing games, or you can just collect them if you enjoy that type of thing. Mike, who is the character that you created? You collect them like Pokemon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there's 50 in all. Got to catch them. them. So, um, you know, there was a, actually quite a few folks to work with, but... I candidly was disappointed about how little man fishing there was in the men fish. So uh, I decided to go for the obvious, which is um, turn Swede into a were shark because man fish. Uh, first of all, I find the concept of a character who really cares about a boat to be interesting. It's it's certainly interesting in a Dungeons and Dragons party. It's a really interesting NPC, right? So he's not just a person who uh, sort of manages the boat, but really cares about it in a way that almost like it's a person or lover or a friend. Um, and there is a little bit like they do try and explore this a little bit they don't get very far in it, but they do try to be like, what's your deal? And he talks about how he has a little locket of his wife and I think daughter, or no, his wife and his mother, both of them deceased. He didn't say so, wife. He said like sweetheart or something like that. Sweetheart so, and his but mother. Yeah, yeah. It was like two women that were so, important to him and they 
had both passed. And so the boat was what he had left. Implied, right? Certainly was that that's all he had. And um, so that's him. That's that's this concept. He's he uh, he had uh, he was fell, fell in love with a woman named Lena. She in the story in my version. And um, he was away fishing at sea. He was too engaged and she passed away while he was away. And he believes that she basically haunts the man fish. So, um, and part of his curse is that he is this shark person who has this sort of dark side to him. Um, so by day he is sort of this gentle soul trying to manage the boat as best he can and fish and do all that. But if somebody crosses him, uh, he eats him. So I, I think it's an interesting character. He's not meant to be a villain necessarily. Um, he's sort of a neutral character. He's the kind of person that abusive PCs may underestimate and treat poorly and look out, right? So he can, he can definitely do things like, uh, strangle you, which I enjoyed. So kind of an interesting character that I think gives him his due was sort of my opportunity to do this, even though it has nothing to do with the story (laughs) at all, actually. No, but, but that's fine because there's a place for him, I'm sure, in a lot of people's campaigns. But where does he excel? All right, he is a were shark. This is something that I absolutely don't know much about. What kind of stats does he have? What kind of proficiencies does he have as a shark? Besides, I'm assuming, swimming and biting. Yeah, so he's strong and, you know, basically all the shark statistics, but he's not very bright. Uh, Swede, I think, comes across the way. He's simple in his own way, but very earnest. Um, so he's, he's certainly that kind of character. Um, he has the abilities to actually manage the boat, right? So that's what's sort of neat. He can, he can repair his boat, uh, his lair, because a lot of these are, these are legendary villains very often. He's a legendary villain. His lair is the boat. So fighting him on his boat is something you can imagine is not fun. Um, and, uh, he'll defend it. Uh, he's sort of the opposite. We made Captain Caswell, who is the, you know, this guy who just sort of uses his boat as a tool to harm the fish of the sea. Um, Swede, the f- ironically, by the way, I'm not assuming there's Swedish fish, but <laughs> Swede on the man fish is this, uh, essentially the opposite. He, he is sort of really more worried about his boat and keeping it running, but absolutely to your point, um, PCs traveling by ship probably would encounter him. And, uh, he's the kind of guy you may well have as a retainer, somebody who manages your boat for you. So because he's a wear shark, because his lair is a boat, he's got to be on a body of water. What kind mm-hmm. of bodies of water would you find him on? Well, it, it's certainly the bigger oceans, right? He's not going to be in a lake um, because of his shark nature. Uh, and you imagine he's probably got a pretty symbiotic, just like in the movie with the turtle fishing, he's probably got some uh, fishing village he calls home that he puts into port. So he's pretty straightforward in the sense that um, he's the kind of guy you probably want for a short journey. Uh, I think if you start going on long journeys with uh, the manfish and with the Swede, you're going to find some things out. Now, whether or not that's a good or bad thing, I think depends on the party and how they treat him. Because again, he's neutral. He's not evil. But uh, he is very attached to the boat. And of course, one of the things that comes up a lot is... Uh, Alita actually asked Swede at one point, why don't you like me? Which is kind of interesting because I didn't think he showed any means of not liking her. But she makes that comment and he says, you know, I kind of feel like you are bad luck, right? And so you get the impression that Swede probably has a lot of sort of superstitions about things. So it's one of those things too that you think you know what 
his buttons are, but you may accidentally push them because maybe you, I mean, and I've read this before, you could whistle. Whistling is bad. Um, whistling on a boat is considered to be, you know, summoning the wind. So there's lots of things that could set him off, uh, potentially too. So it's an interesting kind of, um, he may seem to be a sort of gentle soul, but there's also, he's got, he's pretty complex and, uh, he's easy to trigger. Uh, and you know, again, he turns into a hulking shark man or a shark, but he can turn into this half hybrid shark chompy thing. And, uh, you know, that makes him dangerous. Yeah. I think the thing with Alita, which is kind of a, uh, a trope about women and it's where the misogyny comes in is that she seems to be implying that he isn't expressing a sexual attraction to her. Therefore he must not like her. Right. You know, so what's wrong with you? You are not trying to possess me like every other man tries to possess me. So, and it speaks to the character of Swede. This is not, this is not his journey. He wants to drive his boat and fish. That's what he wants to do. Yeah, and it definitely makes that distinction that, you know, there's the people who are greedy, who are doing this for the money, and they're using each other. And then there's the people who just want to make a living and go home to, a, you know, a warm bed and eat and drink and and are not interested in whatever the, these extra things that they think the money's going to bring them, which it doesn't. Right. Not interested in the drama. And several times in different campaigns that I've played in, I think the PCs came across characters like this that you might initially think that you're supposed to fight this character, that this character right. is automatically an enemy because they are other, right? They're a shark. We're supposed to fight sharks, right? But if you have someone in the party who is thinking about it differently, this character could be brought around to be an ally and actually a really a really beneficial one if you just go about it in the right way and you understand them and give them a little leeway for the things like, like don't whistle on board my boat because that's bad luck. Right. Right. It's interesting too, because Swede is really faithful and loyal in a lot of ways. Um, and he could be as an NPC too. So it's one, it's interesting. I use in this way. I sometimes reflect back on like the choice I made um, because he isn't the main thrust of the film. He's actually, it's almost the heart of the film. But it's very much this sort of battle between these two characters. And in some ways, I see those as the PCs. They're both murder hobos, right? You got like the fighter type who frankly doesn't care about whatever and just threatens everybody until he gets to the answers that he wants and no, doesn't know how to get to the money but really wants the money. And then you sort of have this sort of wizard slash smarter character, maybe a rogue type, who is smart enough to know his leverage, uh, but in a lot of ways isn't much different from the fighter type who just wants to murder everybody and get his, his gold. So uh, to me, they were less appealing. Uh, the Swede was sort of the character that stood out, and I I think he could be an interesting NPC addition because uh, we got plenty of Brannigans and professors in D&D. &D. 100%. And somebody who is a little more nuanced and has more facets to their character is always more interesting than the character who will just bulldoze everything to get to the treasure and the character who will manipulate everyone to get to the treasure. All right, Mike, where can people find this character and download it so that they can use it in their own very special campaigns? So uh, we release each one of these characters once a week for free. We've been doing, we're keeping the streak alive, actually, on uh, patreon.com slash Talien, T-A-L-I-E-N. 
Uh, we do that every Friday. We actually release a character video, this video, um, as well as uh, a one-pager featuring the characters. So you get to see what they're like and their stats and sort of get a background on them so you can leverage them in your games. But they're all being col collected in 5EFO's Gothic Villains, which is all 50. Uh, that's on both DriveThruRPG as well as in my Patreon as well. So if you are a paying member of Patreon, uh, you get access to that and many more uh, products, including 5e RPG Gothic Adventures, which is the uh, accompanying piece of this. If you, for example, want to show the professor's descent into <laughs> paranoia, uh, there are rules for that in uh, 5e RPG Gothic Adventures. So uh, they're sold as a bundle, um, and we put all, we'll have all those links in the show notes. But yes, patreon.com slash Italian, if you just want to sort of get access to all the products that I produced, and then drive through RPG, each of these products is available individually on sale, and they're all in 5e Foes Gothic Villains. All right, and I will say that if you do become a patron, it is not expensive, and you will get a huge amount of content out of it to choose from. It may not all be for you, but that is totally fine. You will find something there that you will want to use. I also encourage you to follow us across the interwebs as World of Wellstar so that you can keep up and get notified about everything new that's coming out associated with this podcast and then also all of the other things that we have going on. We will be posting about it. And uh, I think we're kind of inventive and comical about it in some <laughs> We do say so ourselves. Patreon say so ourselves. actually released a new thing where you can follow for free as well. So if you're not sure, but you want to sort of sample, um, I post things almost daily, uh, at least five days a week, um, uh, including this content. So you can just follow for free. And then if you change your mind or want to upgrade, I've had several uh, patrons uh, convert so you're welcome to do that as well. So follow us on all the socials. Follow us on uh, Patreon. We're happy to have you and follow this podcast. That'd be great. Yeah, I, um, I'm a free follower, Mike. <gasps> Just so you know. What? Yeah, not giving you any money right now. <laughs> We're going to leave it there for episode... Weekend at Manfishes. 29 <laughs> of 50 Date Night Screams Manfish from 19... 56. Normally I would ask Mike if he has anything else to add. I'm not going to do that right now because of where his brain is at. So instead, I'm going to say thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we will see you next time. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. The quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at betrayon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming. 50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca.